Hello, and welcome to The Learn It Podcast, a weekly conversation with global education leaders for people who are passionate about the future of learning. Our aim, to introduce you to change makers who are reimagining what students need to know, how they will learn it, and ways technology can help, or not. We look at learning in traditional settings, schools and universities, but also outside of them, after school, at home, and of course, at work. In our second series, we're looking at how schools are coping with COVID-19, including what lessons we will apply to the hopeful aim of building back better. Topics we obsess on include nimble innovations, closing equity gaps, and ways to prepare students with the mindsets and skills to thrive in what is proving to be a very uncertain world. I'm your host, reporter and author, Jenny Anderson. Our guest today is Diane Tavener, co-founder and CEO of Summit Public Schools, a network of 11 public charter schools in Washington State and California. Diane founded Summit Prep in 2003 with a model focused on mentoring, building student agency, and supporting learning through projects. In 2014, the school caught the attention of first Priscilla Chan and then Mark Zuckerberg. Soon after, Facebook engineers were building its technology platform, the Summit Learning Program. That program is now operated by Gradient Learning, a nonprofit which is partnered with the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. Summit Public Schools is a really interesting model of high tech and high touch, which is why we wanted to see how the schools had fared in the pandemic. One of the things that we believe deeply is that it's our job as we prepare our students to become adults, to prepare them to have agency. And the only way to do that is to practice it and learn it and practice it more and do it every day. And so our our firm belief is if our students don't have agency while they are with us, they will be ill-prepared when they leave us to really have control over their own lives and the ability to make decisions. I visited a summit school a few years ago and students do a lot of their traditional learning online in the classroom and on a computer, but it's also high touch. Projects are done in groups and mentoring is baked into the curriculum, including 70 minutes at the start of each day in which students meet with mentors, set goals, practice mindfulness and build connections with other students. We talk about how the school's very intentional focus on self-directed learning paid off during the pandemic and whether tech can be used to build connection and relationships. Diane weighs in strongly against the move to immediately measure learning loss and talks about the powerful role of routines, how to build the muscles of self-direction and managing through the twin pandemics of COVID-19 and America's racial reckoning. Diane, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, it's great to be with you. I want to start with a comment you made to me when we last spoke. You were emphatically opposed to the concept of COVID learning loss and the message it sends. Why? I really think about what we need to do in service of our children who have been impacted by the pandemic. And I think as leaders and educators, we need to be thinking about them as whole people and what they're going through now and what they'll go through in the future. And when I think about that, if I think about just even me as a teacher in my classroom or me as a school leader, If my strategy was to make sure that our kids right now are feeling cared for, they're feeling as emotionally stable as possible, they're feeling supported, they're feeling connected, the last thing I would do would be lead with a message that you're losing learning right now and you're in terrible trouble and that you are missing all of these opportunities. And that's the message our kids are getting and that's the message that's being sent every day. And I think that it is well-intentioned from the adults who are talking about and worrying about this, but I think they forget that the kids are watching and listening and the impact it's having on them. And yet we have to measure where kids are, right? I mean, there's so many kids in the U.S. who are so far behind. I know it's not a message that we 
want to drive home to them. But in reality, if we care about equity, we've got to know where kids are to help them, to support them. So what should we do? Well, I think that this was a question before the pandemic. And so I think a lot of people are ignoring the fact that all those kids were behind before we started and that the measurements we have were telling us that for years. And we honestly weren't making a ton of progress on that as a field. And so I guess the tension for me is at this moment in time, given what we know about the challenges around mental health, social emotional health, what our kids are going through. I'm honestly less worried about measuring what they aren't having or learning right at this moment. And I'm significantly more interested in supporting them, connecting with them, making sure that they actually are experiencing this time as best as they could. And I'm a little bit okay with waiting a bit of time until we get things under control and that people are actually, you know, back into a somewhat state of normal to figure out, quote, what they're missing and how we might go about supporting them and getting what they need. The message I'm hearing is let's really make sure the kids are okay. And then we can focus on the cognitive, academic, standardized test measures. But let's let's look at these children as kids who have just experienced a pretty unprecedented year and try to get a handle on where they are. I think that's exactly right. And like a very pragmatic decision, for example, facing schools is you know, with kids being out of school for so long, potentially coming back in for short periods of time or quick days, do you want to spend those days literally giving them standardized tests when, you know, these are the moments that they're coming back into the building after being absent for periods of time and who knows what's been going on? Or do you want to actually spend that time with them seeing them as people, connecting with them, figuring out what's going on with them, helping them feel a sense of belonging and support um, that would enable them to learn more. Those are the type of very practical trade-offs that I think we're making, depending on our philosophical approach to, to how we're tackling this. I would be remiss if I didn't ask, did your students have any COVID learning loss at the end of last year, even though I know we don't like that term? We actually feel very good and very confident about how we ended the last school year. And we don't believe that there was any difference between any other years in terms of students, not measuring loss, but students who didn't finish the year having fully mastered the skills needed for that year. And that's sort of how we measure and we have a comprehensive way of doing that. Do we always have a few kids who don't finish the year the way that we would hope that they would and we need to work with them? Absolutely. It wasn't any measurable difference from previous years. So we feel very good about how we finished last year. I will tell you, this year has been harder and we're collectively in it and working as hard as we can. But I've been in education for what, 25 years now, hands down, it's never been this hard. When you came back to school this fall with new students, what did you do in the first few weeks? We tried to replicate what we normally do at the start of the year, which is to develop relationship with our new students, build a culture in our schools, create a community. And, you know, that's different when you're doing it virtually and on Zoom and when you've literally never, you know, seen each other in person. But the goals and the objectives are the same. And we tried to actually leverage the benefits of being in a virtual world. I think one good example is, you know, when a new 
new student shows up to a school, it can be very overwhelming on the first day. You know, you've got hundreds of new kids. It's this new building. It can be very overwhelming all at once. And so we did a much more um, slow entry for our students. And so, for example, they started their first day in a very small, you know, 20 person mentor group experience with one mentor who will be connected with them for multiple years, a group of students who will sort of be their home base for multiple years. And we spent time in that group for a couple of days. Every student was interviewed by their mentor. Um, We taught the kids how to give support and resonance and gratitude for each other using chat functions and all sorts of new strategies that we're all figuring out in this virtual world. And then we slowly expanded those circles to where the students you know, met additional students, talked to them, learned from them. And I think one of the things we did is we did not take for granted that our students would have some basic skills that you would need in order to operate in this virtual world. And so we actually explicitly taught them and practiced them. Literally everything from how do you turn your camera on and off? How do you mute? You know, what is appropriate use of the chat function? You know, what, how do you use a background in case, you know, you're uncomfortable about people peering into your life and your world? All sorts of things like that, that we explicitly taught, practiced, and incorporated into our culture. You made the decision to start this year telling families it would be virtual for the whole year. I imagine that was a hard message to hear because people were hoping that schools might open. In fact, some have. And so what was behind that decision? There's a little bit of a a nuance there that I think is important. We said the learning will be virtual for the entire year. We believe at some point we might open the buildings, but we know for a fact we won't be able to come back and do class the way that we did class before. And so when we do open the buildings, it will be more of a good workspace environment, you know, where you have good Wi-Fi and you have your your space that you're working in. And yes, you have, you know, human contact, but it's going to be socially distanced and masked and all of those sorts of things. And we did that for a couple of reasons. One, very clear from our teachers and our school leaders that it was not going to be humanly possible for them to do high quality virtual school and high quality in-person teaching at the same time. And I've been pretty publicly clear that that hybrid model just actually doesn't make any sense from an operational and learning perspective. And I think we see that you get low quality on both sides. And so we wanted the learning to be consistent and high quality. And we also didn't want to force people to come back into the building. This is such a personal decision. And we wanted our families to know that they were going to be able to make it with confidence and not feel like their child was going to be left behind or missing out or or in some way disadvantaged But if they weren't in the building. Summit is such an interesting combination in my mind of high tech. Kids are online a lot. They have playlists with content on them, even pre-COVID. And this also sort of high touch model of a significant emphasis on relationships in this virtual world. Can technology be used to build relationships effectively in a classroom? I think the answer is yes. And we certainly have a preference for uh, being in person. I think some people are hypothesizing, oh, we'll never go back. That's never been our belief. We relied so heavily on the relationships and connections at first. 
in order to manage through those first few weeks and months of this very dramatic and traumatic in many ways change in our world. And it was those personal connections, those relationships that allowed people to get together and figure out, okay, how is this going to work? And then to your point, I think at some point, probably, you know, summer starting into the new year, we started flipping it and saying, how can we actually leverage the technology to foster relationships? I do think that the two can work to complement and support each other. As you know, we've never believed in this notion that like there's an individual child on a computer learning by themselves. The technology is a tool. And it can be used. And we've been figuring out how to do that as creatively and best as we can. A big part of your model, as you've referenced, is this mentor. Every student spends 70 minutes in the morning with their mentor group and their mentor. What did that look like pre-COVID? And what did that look like in COVID? And did you tweak it? I think the tweak is a good way to think about it because we didn't fundamentally or structurally change the time. It's purposely positioned at the beginning of the day. It's purposely positioned for when students, whether they arrive in a building or now in the virtual space, they arrive in a space where they they have a, an adult that they're connected to who they know knows about them, cares about them, is checking in with them. That's the first person they see. They have a group of kids who they are it's almost like their family at school that they work with and they care about and they support each other. There's a morning routine where they literally do mindfulness to get sort of grounded and centered, where they check in with each other, where they set goals for the day. All of those things have stayed very consistent and have they're equally important when you're in person as when you are in the virtual world. And those routines that we had were so useful and helpful when we switched into to virtual school. The fact that we had those built in, that when students were you know, missing in the morning, these people who are with them every morning are texting them and chatting them and figuring out where they are and supporting them to get in there. And I think the other piece of that is they had to get creative about bringing joy to school. So one of the disadvantages of being in a virtual school is that you don't have those normal human interactions. You know, you're not bumping into people, you're not seeing each other in the hall. It's more serious and focused. And so one of the things that they've tweaked is how do we actually get creative and bring joy into the virtual space? And we've seen a lot of really lovely examples of that. I think some of the fun ones right off the bat were kids showing up into the Zoom room early with balloons and banners when another kid was having a birthday that day and surprising them when they entered the virtual room and singing happy birthday. You know, it's little things like that that we sort of take for granted in the physical space that they've figured out how to bring into the virtual space. I know that you're saying the kids are doing it, but I imagine the teachers are very much trying to be the engine of this. And I'm curious what tools, techniques, tips, training you gave to them. A couple of pieces there. One, I don't want to underestimate the value of Summit going into this pandemic with a common technology platform, a common curriculum, a common infrastructure. So while many teachers across the globe 
were like trying to figure out which video platform they were even going to use and how to set up a Google Doc so they could share things and how they were going to collect work. That was all infrastructure we already had. And so I think it enabled our teachers to focus more over in this space because they weren't just trying to stand up a, a virtual classroom, essentially. And then we also have a culture of collaboration and continuous improvement. So our teachers are all on multiple teams with other teachers. And so many of these great like techniques and ideas are just like discovered by teachers and then shared widely as best practices among each other. And we have a a real infrastructure around continuous improvement where we do do those sharings. We do also have a team that focuses on developing great professional development and trainings and supports for teachers. They listen really closely to what's happening. Um, They, you know, drop in and observe what's happening and then design those trainings and professional development accordingly. And we've taken advantage of being in the virtual world where everyone has professional development time on Wednesdays and our kids get a little bit of screen time break and whatnot in the middle of the week. And so we're offering, you know, best practices, trainings and tips and ideas and things for teachers on a weekly basis in this realm. I just want to spend some time talking about why agency is important um, and was important before and potentially what COVID has taught us about it's important now. One of the things that we believe deeply is that it's our job as we prepare our students to become adults, to prepare them to have agency. And the only way to do that is to practice it and learn it and practice it more and do it every day. And so our our firm belief is if our students don't have agency while they are with us, They will be ill-prepared when they leave us to really have control over their own lives and the ability to make decisions. And so it is a core focus of what we do. And so we have designed a model around that and made very explicit choices around everything from how we grade to how we teach to this concept of mentoring, to how we develop, you know, goal setting and enable students to drive their own learning on a daily basis. And it really does influence virtually everything that happens every single day. In terms of the difference before and after the pandemic, I would say that um, this has been through all the pain, one of the benefits of the pandemic. Some of the first observations our parents made when our students, you know, had to move into virtual school was how impressed they were with their their children's ability to direct their own learning in the virtual space. And we got, you know, email after email from parents saying, you know, I am struggling as a professional to figure out how to transfer my work home and to stay focused and to plan myself and to be on the virtual world. And I'm watching my child who is really good at this, who really has these incredible skills. And I had no idea until they came home what they were doing. Like I had this sense that it was different there at Summit and that they were learning, but I am now watching what that means and the value of those skills. And so I think the pandemic has really highlighted and brought home, if you will, uh, the importance of those skills and the value of them. Yeah, I was speaking with Rebecca Winthrop from Brookings and she was saying, and I thought it was such a powerful phrase, this pandemic has made so much that was invisible visible. Yeah. I'm curious, do you, because it is such priority, do you have a way of measuring agency? We do have a number of ways of doing it. There are small ways that we measure. So for example, 
are students setting goals and how frequently are they actually achieving those goals? Are they reflecting on them and setting new goals that sort of build off of them? So again, from the science, these are the ways that you can see if students are, are directing one of our many acronyms, the personalized learning plan. And so our students actually set visions for themselves and where they want to go. And we reflect on those. And so you can sort of measure an individual student progress on that. And then there's just a number of behaviors that we are able to see because students are engaging in work and submitting work and things like that on the platform, we are able to see there are behaviors that are associated with students who have more agency. And we can essentially have that data to see if students are behaving in those ways versus not. I've certainly heard from a lot of educators that when they put a lot of this responsibility on their students, they do find it's often too much. So I'd love to get your reflections on like, are kids good at this? Can they become good at this? That last point you made is the key point there. So no, not naturally. Most humans aren't good at it. Good news, it's a skill that can be learned and developed. What I find most often is people don't actually teach it. And then they're like surprised why people aren't good at it. I think what our model has shown and proves is when you actually build in that teaching and that learning and that practice and that feedback, and you do it over and over and over again, year after year after year after year, with appropriate supports at first and then gradual release, kids can become excellent at this. All kids can become very good at this. But you have to be intentional about it in the same way we have to be intentional about reading. You know, if you never teach reading, Some kids will figure out how to read if they're surrounded by books, but most won't. And this skill is no different. Project-based learning is a key component for Summit. How did that serve you during the pandemic and in this virtual environment? I think some of the key differences between project-based learning and what probably most of us think of as school, because it was our experience, whereas you sort of go into a classroom for a class each day and, you know, there's either a lecture or, you know, you do problems on the board and then there's some homework assignment that you go and do and bring back the next day. And at some point there's going to be a test or, or maybe a paper at the end of a unit of study and then everyone moves on. You know, that it turns out is pretty boring in real life. It's worse on Zoom. And so the difference between that and project-based learning is kids actually in a project with a big question that they're all exploring and trying to figure out and learn. And the, the modes of learning are very dynamic. Essentially, the student has a product at the end. So it could be a model that they're developing. It could be some, you know, letter to a senator. It could be, who knows, in this time, like a COVID response plan, uh, something like that, but something authentic and meaningful that their learning is driving towards that's actually interesting to them. And then there's a variety of choices that students have along the way of how they're actually going to do that learning. And it often involves working with groups and individually in pairs. And so I think that flexibility is really useful in the time of COVID, especially when we have kids who for a variety of circumstances aren't able to be there all day, every day, and you can sort of weave in and out of the learning or you can learn at a different time because it's not dependent on you sort of being there and learning from an adult, but more it's you driving your learning through a series of activities and um, engagements and you know what the end is and you're getting feedback and support on that. 
The projects are all ultimately driving towards a set of universal skills that our kids need to learn. Those skills need to be practiced over and over and are repeated for multiple years and across multiple projects. And so one of the things we were able to do is reduce the total number of projects without reducing the focus and the rigor on the skills that they're ultimately driving towards. And we found that to be important. I think that what we're just discovering is it is hard to get as much done as we do when we're in a school and in a school building. And so really zeroing in and focusing on what's most important. And this is where, if we go back to that learning loss concept, this is why people are really freaking out because what they're seeing is you can't quote cover as much material in this world as you would in a sort of day-to-day cadence in person. And so what ends up happening is it just gets left out And I think in a project-based approach, it doesn't have to get left out because it's a skills-based development approach. And so we're able to keep focus on those skills at the same time, reducing the total number of actual assignments. And what are those universal skills? There are seven domains and 36 dimensions, so I will spare you all of the list right now. But the big ideas here, and they're very intuitive to people, are the ability to solve problems to evaluate, to analyze, to to make an argument, to communicate effectively. So those types of universal skills that we see useful across all subject areas and throughout your life. And was there something tangible you did to enhance the student support? In the building, Generally, our middle school kids and teachers want shorter class periods um, because, you know, there's a lot of energy and and more movement. But um, in this Zoom world, it's actually better to have longer periods because there's time then to work together and then to break off into small groups and do more individual support. And so they actually change to the high school schedule for those longer blocks. It also allows for bigger Zoom breaks from the technology during the day. So we, we definitely did some schedule altering to try to be responsive around some of those things. The thing we couldn't solve is this idea of, you know, Zoom fatigue. And the reality is we need to spend time together. And the only method we have to do that right now is virtually. And so there is a limit to how much we can limit the screen time, if you will. Any other lessons learned, big reflections on the past year, specifically maybe things you'll do differently when you go back to the buildings? I do think that there's some things that we will do differently. One of them is the level of collaboration we've been able to have across our schools. We've always believed in that. It's just more challenging when you're in person. And when everything moved to the virtual world and, you know, folks didn't have the need to be literally managing buildings all day and all that goes with that, they had a time and a need to come together more. And that collaboration has been truly invaluable. And so we are collectively committed to figuring out how to not lose that as we go forward. And I think we all, you know, while we'll be happy to get away from it for the most part, we'll we'll very comfortably use virtual meetings and connections when we're not in the same geographic places. So I think that will be great. We are looking at a number of our routines and our focus on relationship and connection and some of the tools and strategies that we've used and figuring out, you know, what did we discover there? And can we bring some of those learnings back into 
our spaces. And then I think finally the biggest thing for our organization has been, you know, this is a twin pandemic for us. Certainly we've got COVID, but, uh, you know, in the U.S. we have a huge racial reckoning and a significant amount of our energy and time and focus has been on that and um, how do we as a, a diverse by design community really reinvent ourselves even more to contribute to a more equitable and just society and an organization that we feel proud of. We're hearing that from so many people. Have you come up with goals, hopes, aspirations, things that you will do differently? We launched an anti-bias, anti-racist um, organization-wide agenda last summer. We've met those initial initiative goals, and we're currently setting the next agenda that will take us through the end of this calendar year. Front and center is a full relook and review of our school cultures, including, you know, student practices and discipline and all of those things. We are a restorative justice organization and approach, but there's still work that we need to do there. And so that will be really central and is central. It's interesting. You remind me that one of the really important conversations and dialogues we've had in the organization during the virtual time is cameras and the use of cameras. And we've had a really important discussion about how schools that have policies that compel and force kids to be on camera and, and how that equates to sort of this mindset around controlling children and in particular black and brown bodies. A lot of people don't think twice about it. Well, of course you have to be in the class. You have to turn your camera on. You're not here if you don't. And really dissecting and looking deeply into that question and what's at the heart of it is the type of work that we are doing and will continue to do. And that was a change you made. You used to require cameras and you don't anymore. It was. And, and, you know, it was sort of a soft requirement. It was kind of like, yeah, you know, of course you come in and you have your camera on. And we, we certainly shifted to it is not a requirement. It explicitly is not. Do we want kids to feel comfortable and present? Absolutely. We are not going to mandate it. We are not going to penalize them or discipline them for not. Pre-COVID, you've gotten some very public pushback saying this is too much tech. I'm curious if this whole experience has made you rethink the balance you have with technology in your schools and which way you'll tilt. I actually think this experience has been somewhat affirming because I do think that, like you said, it's made the invisible visible. And one of the nuances that was lost before in the conversation about screen time was really discriminating among the different types of screen time. And so we've never been supportive of kids spending a lot of time just like passively consuming or, or being on social media or those sorts of things. And our screen time has always been about literally using technology as a tool to advance learning and, and growth and connection and things like that. And so what I'm hopeful about is that we can actually have that more thoughtful and nuanced conversation going forward and not sort of be stuck in this old paradigm of just screens bad, screens good, which was never true. I'm also so hopeful that collectively educators can start to be more thoughtful about the quality of the technology products that we have and more strategic about what we're using and how we're using it and why. We are out of time, so I have to do my three very quick questions. What is your favorite book about learning? I have so many, but one of the most important books to me is Linda Darling Hammond's The Right to Learn. And your favorite book not about learning? 
My favorite book is always my most recent favorite book. So I'm actually leading for our professional development next week, a book club around Isabel Wilkerson's cast. So that is my current book right now. So my current favorite book is so powerful. Everyone should read it. And what are you binge watching? I'm not really a binge watcher. Most people who know me know I don't watch TV. I will admit that during the pandemic, I did watch, oh my gosh, Bridgerton. So that was, <laughs> that was great fun. Lots of popcorn. Diane, thank you so much for taking some time out of your very busy schedule to talk to us. And good luck getting through the end of what is proving to be a very challenging year. Thank you so much. Summit struck me as one of the many districts or groups of schools that might have fared well in this awful pandemic year. It had built a tech platform, students were trained to take charge of their own learning, and the group of schools was focused on sharing best practices and iterating across the network. I think that turned out to be true. The 70-minute morning meeting turned into a way to make sure students were present and okay. The projects meant students could be more self-paced, they didn't have to be present for every lesson. And no one was scrambling to learn an entirely new tech platform. Summit clearly had to tweak what it was doing in response to student, parent, and teacher feedback. Fewer projects, redesigning the middle school schedule, assigning more time each week for professional development. But what really hit home with me was that in spite of all of these advantages or planning, it's still proving to be a really, really tough year. As Diane said, the toughest by far in her 25-year career. I appreciated her honesty about that, as well as her emphatic case against immediately measuring learning loss and focusing on figuring out whether the kids are actually all right. If you want to ask Diane questions, she'll be at Learn It Live on March 9th. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and we look forward to seeing you next time. We'll link to the items mentioned in today's podcast in the show notes. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and share it. And you can find out more about our community of global education leaders and upcoming meetups by joining our mailing list at learnit.world. In the meantime, stay safe, stay curious, and see you next week.